Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, man, isn't this a gorgeous spring day? Nothing like Central Texas in the springtime as far as I'm concerned. Just the beauty beauty of being here. Uh, polar vortex is in our rearview mirror, and we're going forward. But it's so good to see you today. We're starting a new series today in uh, the book of Philippians. I, I was going to preach on Second Kings chapter 2, the story of Elisha, and he had some young men who were uh, basically trash-talking his bald head, and he called two baler bears out of the mountain to come and to <laughs> maul them. And uh, But since we saw mauling on Monday night, uh, I figured I'd go go a different direction. But we're going to be in Philippians chapter Philippians chapter 1 in just a moment. But i got to set the table for where we're going. I know that um, sometimes it just seems like, where do they come up with that series? Why, why are they going that direction? But every time we go a particular direction, uh, it is prayed through, it is sought. Lord, there, there's two things we, we try to measure is one, where we're at as a congregation, what and what the Holy Spirit is really speaking to our hearts about addressing that situation, and so that's the situation where um, where we're at today, going through Philippians, and we're calling uh, this basically the secret of contentment, and uh, I want to try to give you some thoughts as we get into this because I really believe personally. That this is as practical as a newspaper you pick up today. Uh, going on social media and getting the headlines. This is just as practical for us as followers of Jesus Christ today. I really believe that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to stay in tune. There was a pilot, commercial pilot, and, uh, he, he would fly his cross country trips. Every time he flew over the Appalachians, uh, he would just look down reflectively into the, into the mountains and the valleys as he flew over them. Well, one time his co-pilot said, why is it that every time we fly over the Appalachians that uh, you just look so longingly down there in the, in, the, in the valley and everything? And the pilot said, you see that stream down there in the valley? And the guy said, yeah. He said, when I was a boy... He said, I used to go and just sit on a log and fish. And every time a plane flew over, I just dreamt about being a pilot. Now I hear, I'm here a pilot, and all I dream about is being down there fishing. Contentment. We, we, you know, we say the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, don't we? And, uh, so we try to go to that only to find that a contentment just continues to elude us. Contentment and discontentment is a battle that is happening in our culture today. And this is where I'm concerned, our elders are concerned, that we help prepare a congregation, that we bring warnings to, to see in our times, to read our times. But the word content means Satisfaction or at peace in. So we, we want to be, uh, we want to have contentment. That's just what it, but it seems so elusive, doesn't it? One minute we're content, the next minute we're discontent. And I was thinking about different reasons that we, we're discontent. We could start over here, 
with the lambs and move all the way across and probably come up with many different reasons where we're discontent. But I want to try to give you some, uh, if I could. One is this, unmet expectations. We all have expectations. We have expectations of our spouse, expectations of our job, expectations of our church, expectations of our government. And when those expectations go unfulfilled, we get discontent. Um, comparison. We go on Facebook because it is the most important thing on all the World Wide Web. And we go on there and we see pictures of that family that's perfect, has a perfect job, it seems. The family looks perfect. We start comparing our worst day to their made-up best day. And we don't even come close and we, we get discontent. Um, our rights are infringed upon. You know, as citizens of the United States, we have certain inalienable rights. And when those rights are infringed upon, we get discontent because we feel like nobody's doing anything. We get discontent when we're unhealthy. And healthy mentally, physically, socially, spiritually. Anytime we're unhealthy, we get discontent. We just uh, struggle with that. Here's another one. Change. We, we don't like change. We like everything to remain the same. It's just that our salary goes up, right? We want that to change. But everything else, we don't want to change. And uh, we, uh, we struggle in a temporary world because things are always changing. One more. Loneliness and isolation. Just because you're sitting in a group of people in here as one of our three services... You can feel lonely and isolated, and uh, that makes you feel discontent. You just don't feel like you're fulfilling your purpose, and there's not peace. And, and we can mention many, many more, but I would venture to say that everybody in this room, on, on a time of discontent that you've had in one of those roller coaster experiences, I've probably listed the reason that you had that discontentment. And we all battle it. And uh, yet Paul comes along and he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. He's in prison in Rome and he can say he's content in all things. And so I, I start thinking, Paul, really, is that is that a formula that we can be content even in our day? And so I started looking at our day a little bit. We, we're coming out of this pandemic that, that uh, we're thinking... Part of us is a little shaky. What, what else may be around the corner? And so we, we, uh, we have this contentment one day and discontentment the next. Terrorism that, that, uh, plagues our planet. Um, we, we, you know, Paul, can I be content with terrorism? The media that has a slant and everybody, who's telling the truth? And so we battle that. Gender confusion in our day. Um, and, and that's starting to be taught in schools and, and we, we get concerned and we think, can I be content in a culture that is, uh, 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 coming around this? Fractured families. We see families fractured and scattered and, uh, uh, fatherlessness and whatever else may be there and we think, can I be content in a culture where this exists? Uh, comparison, I just mentioned about Facebook, but all social media, we start doing this comparison thing. Here's another thing. The, our culture here in America today 
our worldview as a culture, you may adhere to a Christian worldview, but our culture adheres to a secular humanist worldview. And so, is it possible that something that is coming against your worldview all the time, that you can be content in the midst of this? One more. Immorality. The things that we they used to be hidden in the shadows are now hitting us right in the face. Can I be content, especially raising my kids in a culture that that hits us right in the face? And so we, we look at this, and I'm going to submit to you that Paul's uh, theory on contentment still exists today. And I'm going to talk to you about that culture a little bit and that we've got nothing to whine about uh, in our culture. We've got to stand. And this is where I'm, I'm going to just be up front that our elders have been praying over our church. And I'll make this st- statement. It, it's going to get harder and harder for the follower of Jesus in our culture. It's going to get harder and harder for the follower of Jesus in our culture. If you're a fringe follower of Jesus, you probably will fall away. Because our culture, unless... Jesus brings this great revival, which I believe he can. It will continue to be getting harder and harder. And I'm the half full uh, kind of guy. I'm not the half empty kind of guy. So, But reality tells me, and our elders, we pray about this. We pray over our congregation. It's not necessarily a warning, but it is a warning. It is more of a preparation for the days ahead and what is coming. And so we're going to talk about this secret of contentment that Paul brings forth. So um, let me give you a little background on Philippi before I read the scriptures. Philippi, where this letter is written to, I've already told you Paul was in jail in Rome. And he's written this letter to this community in Philippi. Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father. Philip, they, that's where Philippi got its name from. It was a Roman colony in Eastern Europe. So we're going to talk about the first church ever planted in Europe, which we know the missionary movement out of Europe is what brought the gospel to the United States. But this was the first uh, community in Europe where Paul is going to go to. It was a Roman colony. That meant that the Roman Empire was vast, okay? It was vast. And so... What happened in the city of Rome, they tried to reproduce all in these different colonies. And Philippi was one of those colonies. In other words, it was a little Rome. It was only ten to 15,000 people. Forty percent of those were slaves. But it was a Roman colony. That meant you got everything from Rome. The paganism, the uh, uh, the immorality, but you got the good things too. And, and it was a melting pot of people. Mainly made up of retired Military, Roman military. And that's who lived in uh, Philippi. Like I said, 40% of them were slaves. And out of this, Paul plants the first church in Europe. And, and you may remember in reading out of uh, the book of Acts how that church started. I love this because Paul and Silas come to Philippi, okay? They meet a woman named Lydia. She is actually a Jew. There's not many Jews in Philippi. And they meet her down by the water's edge, and uh, they begin talking to her. 
and she commits her life to Christ. Not only Lydia, but her whole household commit their life to Christ. So Paul and Silas, now you got the first converts in Europe. Paul and Silas make their way into Philippi, and for a few days, this demonized woman continues to yell out, these are servants of the Most High God, and she's yelling out, even though she's sharing truth, it's confusion, and what she's demonized, and part of her role was, because she was demonized in such a way, she made money for these businessmen out of uh, her peril, okay? So Paul has had all he can stand. He, the Popeye came at him. This is all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And he turns and he casts that demon out of her. And so here she is. She's converted in her right mind. So we've got Lydia's family. Now we have this demonized woman. These businessmen are hacked off at Paul and Silas. They have the magistrates put them in prison. And this is a true story. And then what happens is, is that it's midnight. Paul and Silas are singing hymns at midnight. This earthquake comes, tears the prison apart. The jailer comes in. He's about to run his sword through him because he thinks the prisoners escaped. Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. And he says, man, what must I do? Paul shares the gospel of Jesus Christ, the living Savior, with him. He's converted, and he and his whole family, and a church is born. you got Lydia and her family, this demonized girl, and you got this Roman jailer and his family. Voila, you got church. They leave Dr. Luke, who is the first pastor there. He is going to lead and bring these people together in Philippi. Great way to birth a church. And so that's what has uh, taken place. Now, the culture of the church was interesting. Is that uh, you got to realize Paul wrote most of the New Testament and he, most of his letters was because of fixing some struggle in that church. In Philippi, they were not uh, immune to problems. They had two women who were uh, arguing. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, they were battling some legalism. You know, can't do this, you can't do that, can't do this. And they were battling that legalism. But the good thing is, they were an incredibly generous church. In fact... One of the reasons Paul wrote this letter is because the church in Philippi took up an offering. They sent it by the guy named Epaphroditus down to uh, Paul in Rome, and he got these goods, and he's writing to say, man, I just thank God in every remembrance of you. What you've started is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, continue. And so the, the, this is part of his letter. Here, also, Paul mentions joy and rejoice 16 times in this letter. And he's in jail! Okay? He has no rights. He, he is all that's trampled upon. But he can say joy and rejoice 16 times in a four-chapter letter. So, let's read. We're going to get deep today. Two verses. But I'm, I'm going to get farther as we go along. But today, just two verses. Because I really believe if we can get these first two verses, especially part of it, we are going to be light years on to say this contentment is possible even in our day. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we're going to stop. This is a basic greeting. You know, we start a letter by by saying, dear Ed, dear Jason. That's how we start a letter. But not Paul. Paul kind of gives us credentials in the start of the letter. And notice who he says is. is. He said, it's to the saints. Now, that doesn't register us because we think of saints as martyr people and people out here, the saints. But that's not scriptural. I'm going to tell you what the scriptures say about saints. Saints means set apart ones, okay? It means set apart ones. So what Paul is doing here, he is saying, as followers of Jesus, you are saints. So here's my, here's my first thought for you to jot down. Every follower of Jesus is considered a saint. Every follower of Jesus is considered a saint. So look at the person next to you and call them saint, whatever their name is. Do, do that right quick, just so they feel good about themselves. Uh, they, uh, every follower of Jesus is considered a saint. There was a father who had his young son and they were out on a Saturday morning and they came upon a beautiful chapel. May looked, may have looked much like the children's home chapel over there. And if you have ever walked through that and the beauty of the stained glass windows. So they walk in and walk in the aisle and they start looking around and the little boy says, what's that? Pointing to the stained glass windows. And dad says, uh, those are the saints. And so they go home and mom says, did you learn anything in your trip? He said, oh, mom, I learned what a saint is. And uh, she says, well, what's a saint? He said, a saint is a window that the sun shines through. And I thought, you know, that's what we are. We are saints. We are set apart part ones. We are no longer under the wrath of God. We have been set apart as his children. And listen, since we have been set apart as his children... We should live different lives. And I don't mean odd for God. We've tried odd for God, and that's turned people off. We need to be the ones that lead out in uh, purity, in love, in compassion, in justice. We ought to be at the forefront. And the world ought to look at us and say, they are saints. They're set apart. They are different. So he says, first of all, to the saints... Who are in Philippi. And then notice what he says next. To the overseers and deacons. Now, this is the uh, leadership of the church. Okay? The, the word term overseers, sometimes you'll see the term elders. Sometimes you may see the term shepherds or presbyters. Or there's many different terminologies that you may hear. The, the word originally means Shepherds. These are the overseers, the elders of the church, and the deacons, the servants, those who serve within the church. What, what Paul is getting across, even in the introduction of this letter, this is my thought number two, that God has established spiritual leaders for his church. God has established spiritual leaders. It is not to be a haphazard thing where everybody just does what they want. There needs to be capable, spiritually mature leadership that takes place in that church. This means a whole lot to the Lord and his church. Now I'm going to give you some thoughts. And I'm throwing myself under the bus in these thoughts. 
First one is this. If your church leaders are not resembling Jesus, pray and move on. If your church leaders are not helping you grow in your faith to become more like Christ, pray and move on. If your church leaders are not lifting up the Word of God and opening the Scriptures, pray and move on. And most of all, pray for your leadership. Pray for your elders. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your leadership. Here's why. Sheep bite. Shepherd gets nipped by his sheep all the time. Unexpected. It's the same way in church life. Sheep bite. You wish we were all walking in the Spirit together, but oftentimes we're not. And sheep just bite. You, you Unexpected. And it just happens. Here's another one. Sheep gossip. They talk about you. I've been in... I've been a part of several of your Sunday lunches, and I wasn't even there. And I was on the menu. I don't know what it tastes like. But you were not in agreement, and I happened to be the voice. And so, let's just take it out. Here's another one. Sheep wander. They wander. How many people, I'm going to go back two years ago because a year ago wouldn't be uh, fair because of this past year. But two years ago, there were certain people that were actively involved and not just sitting here worshiping but serving. Can't find them. Trying to. Can't find them. Sheep wander. I'm going to say something I didn't say in the last two services because I, I just feel compelled in my spirit. You don't know how much I lay awake because of wandering sheep. My staff know it. I can tell you who's not here more than I can tell you who's here. What is is that just a weird gift? I, probably. But sheep wander. Here's one more. Sheep get hurt. And need someone to care for them. How often does your church leadership feel inadequate about the struggles that you go through? So pray for your leadership. And then notice what he says. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions two terms. He says, grace to you. What is grace? Grace is that unmerited favor gift of God, and peace is the result of the grace. But here, I want you to hear me, follower of Jesus, just a second, because we have a hard time grasping this. When you were born, you had a fallen nature in you. And that, and that fallen nature, sinful nature, um, you were broken. And you, because of that sinful nature in your life, you were separated from God, and God's wrath was between you and, and, and God. 
And what Jesus did through the cross, he bridged that gap. He became sin who knew no sin so that he could bridge that gap. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are seen as um, justified in the presence of God. So hear what I'm going to say. Through grace is the unmerited gift of God. But through that grace, we have peace with God and then it leads to the peace of God. You hear what I'm saying? When we have peace with God, then we have the peace of God in our lives. So many people do not understand this. And they go, oh, God, fix my life. God, make me content. Make me uh, do all this stuff. And they have never dealt with the peace with God. Jesus dealt with that. But you have to place your faith in Christ. So I want you to understand, peace with God leads to peace from God. Okay? Now, I want to spend the next few minutes, one more point, basically. And and notice in verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The word servants, your Bible may say bond slaves. It may say slaves. The Greek term is a term doulos, which means slave. And so what Paul is saying here is, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I think about slavery in, that took place in the United States. I want to try to, right quick, describe slavery in the Roman Empire. 30 to, 30 to 40 percent of the total population of the Roman uh, advancement of, of landmass, 30 to 40 percent were slaves. Uh, and the way you became a slave was most of them because Rome was advancing, they took over nations, they were just enslaved those people. Uh, another way is if your parents were slaves, you were born, you became a slave. Another one was um, you were abandoned. A, a family abandoned their child or whatever. Somebody would scarf them up, they would be, become a slave. Um, you were in debt. You could not repay a debt, so you sold yourself into slavery. Here's one more. You parents will love this. Uh, that if you had a child and you were struggling in raising that child, more, most, mostly from finances, you would sell the child into slavery. We're bringing this back today. We believe it's important. No, I'm joking with you. It, but, you, you know, how many times, parents, have you wanted to sell your kid into slavery? Let's just, let's just be open. So... So this is how you became a slave. Now, you take in a large group of people, you have some highly educated people. So you didn't turn them into just farmers or miners. If you had a doctor, that would be a doctor that was a slave. If you had entertainers, they would be entertainers that were slaves. If you had uh, cooks, there would be cooks that would slave. Uh, household servants, businessmen, farmers, teachers... They would bring these in, assimilate them, but they would be slaves. They had no rights. They had no legal status. They couldn't hold political office. They could be freed, but it was highly unlikely. Okay, so this is the background of slavery. Now, Paul addressed this one other time in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 6. And I want to read this to you because Paul lays it out. I'm going to tell you ahead of time. He lays it out that... Everybody is a slave to something. 
Everybody. So this is what it reads in Romans 6, 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Get verse 22. This is a, a, one worth marking. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Freedom comes and then you've been set free from sin so that you can become slaves to righteousness. Who's your master? Just think about it. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness or a slave to Christ. And how you become a slave to Christ? You have been captured or ransomed or redeemed through the cross You have surrendered your rights to take on him, and he has become your master. The part we miss so often is the surrendering of our rights. Here's thought number three for your notes. How you respond to life's circumstances reveals who your master is. How you respond. Now, let's be honest. We do not really know what's inside of us until we're squeezed. I tell you, through life, some of those squeezings have brought up stuff I was ashamed of. I'm just glad for the grace of God. One of the concerns of our elders is what we have seen over the past year in the midst of the squeezings, whether it's been COVID or elections or racism or, or polar vortex or whatever it, the results and, and the response of some Christians have concerned us greatly. They have been squeezed and what has come out is not Jesus. So how you respond to life's circumstances reveals who your master is. If your response is fear and anxiety, selfish anger, defensiveness over your so-called rights, depression, and I'm not talking about chemical imbalance, anxiety and depression. I'm just talking about when the world squeezes you, you just go, oh, woe is me, pity me. If your response is any of those, you might have slipped into serving an old master. 
But if your response is peace and compassion and confidence and joy and discernment led by wisdom, in other words, caution, discernment led by wisdom, then you are responding as Jesus did, and so he has become your master. How you respond to life's circumstances reveals who your master is. So this brings me to my last thought, and it's this. The ultimate consideration is the character of your master. If we all are following something, we're either following sin or we're following righteousness. What about our master? I can tell you this about the world. It is temporary. It plays on man's fears. It pits people against one another. And it tries to give you your identity by what the world says. This is the master of following this world. And tell me if we don't see it day in and day out. And yet we still follow after that. But God is full of grace and mercy, unconditional love, all-powerful and all-knowing. He's pure and holy. And get this, he is in control. Who's your master today? Who is the one you're following? Oh, it's easy to say with our mouths, right? Oh, Jesus, I'm, I'm a follower of yours. But what about when the squeezing come? Is it all about my rights, my rights? Is it all about, oh, me, me, me? Or is it about, Lord, I'm going to trust you through this. I'm going to be, I'm going to be cautious and I'm going to walk in wisdom, but I'm going to trust you. And it's amazing how in the course of hours, we will fall back and forth. Or am I just talking about me? But you know, because of what Jesus has done, I know that Christ is my king and my master. There's one discontentment I'm going to talk about. And that discontentment is an eternal discontentment. You know within yourself that if you were to die today, you would not spend eternity with the Father. And there's this discontentment in your heart that says, I need to deal with that today. And so my prayer is that the King of all kings, the Lord Jesus, who went to the cross, who rose from the dead that we talked about last week, he is waiting for you to take that step of faith today to surrender your rights and say, Jesus, I have no rights other than you. Philip Yancey, who uh, is a Christian writer, he wrote about a spiritual seeker who interrupted his busy life. He knew he needed to slow down, so he decided to go to a monastery. And he went to a monastery, and the monk who showed him his sparse room said this, I, sa- I hope your stay is a blessed one. If you need anything... 
Let us know and we'll teach you how to live without it. In other words, my life's not all about me and my comforts. It's so much bigger than that. Did you know in following Christ as your master, your identity is no longer set by the media, social media, entertainers, whatever is being taught at school. Your identity is set by who Jesus is.